Law and grace are two foundational concepts that occupy a whole lot of real estate uh, in this book. Um, You know, you get to the second book of the Bible, Exodus, about midway through, and you're introduced to the law, and then it sort of takes precedence and is sort of the central theme all the way through the rest of the Old Testament. Uh, Chronologically and historically, that spans about a thousand years of the New Testament, I mean the Old Testament books being written, but it spans about 1,500 years from the time the law was given on Mount Sinai with Moses in Exodus chapter 19 and 20 until the time of Christ, the law. But then you come to the New Testament and the time of Christ and the word grace is just pervasive throughout the New Testament. Every book of the New Testament for that 100-year time span that takes us to the mid-90s A.D. at the end of the first century. So these are pretty important concepts, and a failure to understand the relationship between these two concepts, law and grace, uh, will result in confusion and lack of any real uh, motivation and purpose in your daily life. But if you have a proper understanding of law and grace, uh, then it's going to result in a life of clarity and meaning and kind of a a true north, a really a basic understanding of how God operates uh, on uh, this planet with human beings. So how do law and grace go together? That's what we want to talk about. Let me uh, sort of begin by trying to explain the relationship through what I call the law and grace continuum. Uh, The reason law and grace are so critical to understand is because they relate to behavioral tendencies uh, that correspond to each one. On the one hand, you've got legalism, and on the other extreme, you've got license. And uh, so let's talk about legalism first. Um, I, I was trying to think of an example, and I can think of many. I'm sure you can as well. But I, I've been on some 70 or 80 college campuses around the country, and many of these are conservative, Christian, Bible-believing uh, universities. And some of those, not a lot, but some, are very rigid and sort of fundamentalist. And they have very rigid dress codes that are a daily reality. And administrators patrol the campus, you know, with tape measures, looking to see how long the skirts are and does the the guy's hair go over their collar and is the shirts tucked in and things like that. See, for some people, they kind of gravitate to one extreme. What we want to do is have balance. We want to see what the Bible says about this relationship because there is a place for law and, of course, there's a place for grace, but how do they work together? So for some people, uh, maybe you kind of gravitate over here toward legalism where you like to draw lines, you, you like structure, you're kind of demanding and unforgiving. Uh, you know, you, you, you're sort of rigid and judgmental. But for other people, you can go to the other extreme. Sometimes people gravitate too far toward license where there's no order, you know, no structure, no rules and no accountability, sort of anything goes. It's what the Bible refers to as antinomian. Anti, against, namas, law, so sort of against the law. They're opposed to any sort of laws, and, and they have this license. And the verse that we read this morning as a, a group talks about not using the freedom that we have in Christ as a license to sin. So on the one hand, you can draw too many lines, especially the lines that the Bible doesn't draw, but on the other extreme, you do need some lines to maintain order. And so the goal is to strike a balance. That's what we want uh, to talk about this morning. And you strike a balance by understanding how these two foundational concepts that are so central to the Bible's message from cover to cover 
work together. So as we have been going through the book of Acts, we uh, come to the year 40 A.D. So if you remember, the church started in 33 A.D., that's where Acts 1 begins. And so now we're seven years roughly into uh, the church age. And Luke, in his narrative here, is going to sort of switch his focus from Saul uh, back to Peter. Remember, we looked in recent weeks at Saul's conversion and how uh, we talked about Saul as the perfect example of immeasurable grace. And then last week, we looked at uh, what true Christian heroes are all about, and we used Ananias as an example of that. Here's a guy who God said, go talk to Saul. And last he'd heard, Saul was this murderous thug who was killing every Christian he could, and Ananias is like... Lord, do you really know what you're doing? But he obeyed and he went. So it's 40 AD. None of the New Testament books had been written yet. The early church was still operating largely under this Jewish paradigm. Remember, the early Christians were Jews. And so they had not fully embraced this notion of Jew and Gentile in one body that would become clear as God revealed more about his plan through the pen of human authors in the New Testament. And we saw some early signs of this struggle that they were having, sort of getting their hands around this Jew and Gentile in one body notion, back in Acts chapter 6, when, if you recall, the Jewish Christians and the Greek Christians, the Hellenists, were sort of bickering over whose widows should get preferential treatment. And they, they had kind of a, a little fight about that. So the law had been for centuries, as I said, for 1,500 years, sort of like a nanny to God's people that was always there to point out what needed to be done or what should be done. But now, God's plan was changing. God's people had, had grown up, so to speak. and They no longer needed a nanny, or at least they shouldn't have needed one. And so you get to Acts chapter 10, and Luke tells the story of how God gets Peter's. Now, Peter, of course, was a quintessential devout Jew who was a Christian. He believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, became a Christian, but his Jewish roots were entrenched within him. And so Luke tells the story in Acts chapter 10 of how God gets Peter's attention and reminds him that the law, while it served a purpose, is not sacrosanct and it's not supreme. So let's pick it up in verse 9. Now let me kind of give you some background here. Uh, you know, God was, again, preparing the way for this momentous experience in Peter's life and preparing the way for this momentous encounter that Peter was going to have with a leading Gentile of the day, Cornelius. And God was about to show that the gospel was uh, equally relevant to all people, not just God's chosen nation, Israel, but anybody on earth. In fact, everybody on earth needs Jesus, right? And so God was about to show that. In fact, Luke spends chapter 10 and most of chapter 11 dealing with this issue of Cornelius because Peter goes to meet Cornelius. Cornelius and his whole family get saved. They then get baptized. And then Peter has to defend this idea to the early church leaders back in Jerusalem. Uh, so in chapters 1 through 8 uh, of chapter 10, Luke tells us about Cornelius, that he's a God-fearing man, he respected God, he, he believed in a creator, but he didn't know Jesus. And so God sent an angel to, to Cornelius with instructions of what he should do. And the angel said to Cornelius, here's what you do. Send some of your men, your, your delegates, to Joppa. And there's a guy in Joppa named Peter. 
and I want you to find Peter and summon him back to come see you. And by the way, this is a great example of what Paul would later write about in Romans chapter 1, and a very important principle in Scripture, that if a lost person responds to general revelation, general revelation is the, the revelation that exists that tells everybody on earth there's a God. Creation, providence, nature, conscience, nobody has an excuse because everyone who's taken a breath recognizes there is a God. And if they will cry out to their creator, God's word promises, God will send them special revelation, namely the gospel, so that they can hear the good news about God's plan of salvation, believe it, and be saved. And that's exactly what we see happening here with Cornelius. So if you remember, at the end of chapter 9, and we skipped over some of those sections, we spent two weeks in chapter 9, but we still didn't cover everything in uh, chapter 9. But Luke tells us about a couple of amazing signs and wonders that happened at the end of chapter 9. First, Peter healed this bedridden man named Aeneas who had been confined to his bed for eight years. And, and Peter, through the power of the Spirit, healed him. This was in a city called Lydda. And Luke tells us because of that miracle, many people turned to the Lord. And then in Joppa, Peter raises a woman from the dead. Her, name was, her Greek name was Tabitha. Uh, her, I'm sorry, her Aramaic name was Tabitha. Her Greek name was Dorcas. Now, if your Greek name was Dorcas, you would go by your Aramaic name too, Tabitha. But anyway, uh, she was raised from the dead. And Luke again tells us many people believed in the Lord as a result of that miracle. So Peter is living in Joppa with a man who coincidentally is named Simon. So this is Luke's example of the Simon and Simon story. Simon living with Simon, right? And he's living there and and an angel tells Cornelius to go to Joppa, send some people to Joppa, find Peter and bring him back. So here we are up to verse 9. It's the next day. This is the next day after the angel told Cornelius to send men to Joppa. So as they, these delegates, went on their journey and drew near the city, that's Joppa, Peter went up to the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. That was about noon. Now God most often gives us information when he has our attention. Let me say that again. God most often gives us information when he has our attention, and he best has our attention when we pray. When we pray. Uh, Peter prayed, like most Jews, twice a day. This was an, an additional third hour uh, time of prayer. Peter was probably praying, we're just speculating, but probably praying this extra time here at the sixth hour at noon because of all that had just happened in Joppa and Lydda, and he was just excited and God was doing amazing things and he was seeking the Lord. So he goes up to pray. Then the Bible tells us in verse 10, he became very hungry and he wanted to eat. God probably caused this hunger to prepare him for what was about to happen, this strange vision. And the vision was a vision about food. He says he wanted to eat, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance. He fell into a trance. Now, the word trance here is later referred to with a different word in this account in chapter 10 as a vision. So we know it was a vision, but it's interesting that Luke uses this word trance. It's the Greek word ekstasis, where we get ecstasy from. And if you think of the meaning of ecstasy, not the drug, not the illicit thing, but just the generic term of ecstasy, it's just this euphoric feeling of, of just really being in the moment, right? And that's what... Peter was, and it's a good thing because God was about to really rock his world. And so he sees this vision. 
Heaven opens and an object like a great sheet bound at the four corners, descending to him and let down to the earth. Uh, all we can do is take the Bible at its word. We, we could speculate maybe this was a, sort of a, 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 like a, an awning that, Pete, that was up on the top of the house where Peter was praying, and, and the Lord used that to present this vision. Maybe it was like a ship's sail. But whatever it was, it appeared like a great sheet, and it came down to him. And in it were all kinds of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. The issue of unclean food was one of the basic issues that separated observant Jews like Peter from the so-called unclean Gentiles. So God was addressing a cultural preference in Peter's life that had been born out of the Old Testament law. And again, he was about to rock Peter's world by pointing out that your personal preferences and religious prejudices do not dictate what you do and how you behave. God says, I do. Listen to me. Listen to me. And so a voice, the voice of the Lord, came to him and said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. The point is that, if, that this, this command of the Lord would free Peter up from any scruples about going to a Gentile home and eating whatever the Gentile put before him because God was about to send Peter. Remember, we got the beginning of the story, then there's a side story with Peter and the vision, then Luke comes back and with the story of the men coming to Peter. So God had to prepare Peter's heart. It's okay to go sit down and have a meal with this Gentile because I want you to tell him about my son and your Savior, Jesus. And you can't do that if you put a wall up between you based on your religious prejudices. So... Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything uncommon. This is an example of Peter's frequent refrains, no, Lord. Remember in Matthew chapter 16, as the Lord is just days from his uh, crucifixion, and he begins to spell out in great detail what's going to happen, Whereas previously in his three-and-a-half-year ministry, he'd only hinted at the fact that, he has to, that suffering has to come before victory, that the cross has to come before the crown. And, but now he's making it very clear, and Peter jumps in as he often does and says, Far be it from you, Lord, that'll never happen to you. Or we could think of the upper room just the very night that the Lord was betrayed. When, remember, the Lord said, I want to wash your feet. And Peter jumps up and says, No, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. That's just Peter's nature. He frequently responds, no, but as I've pointed out before, there is never, ever an acceptable time to utter the words, no, Lord, no, Lord. Peter's response was similar to Ezekiel. So this was nothing new. There are times when God says, look, the law, which we're going to see, served a purpose, but for now, I want you not to worry about it because there's something bigger going on than just the law. And God had told Ezekiel the same thing, and Ezekiel responded in the same way in Ezekiel chapter 4, ah, Lord God, indeed, I've never defiled myself. I've never eaten anything unclean. But the Lord said, kill and eat. And so uh, we read on, a voice spoke to him again the second time, what God has called cleansed, you must not call common. What God has cleansed, you must not call common. And this was done a total of three times, and then the object was taken up out of the way. So Peter needed to hear this three times. He had either forgotten or never understood to begin with the fact that Jesus taught the same thing. In Mark chapter 7, 
Jesus made it clear there's nothing unclean about what you eat. You can eat anything. Uh, but yet Peter was so devout and so fixated on the law that he, even the Lord's own teaching was far from his mind. His Jewish cultural prejudices were overriding the very word of God and his thinking. So God repeated this three times to get him ready and make him prepared for what was going to, to happen. So he's sitting here in Joppa. A friend and mentor of mine had, uh, I think, asked an interesting question. I wonder if Peter, as he's having this experience and being asked to do something that he was very uncomfortable doing, thought back to another servant of the Lord centuries earlier who also had been in Joppa when God said, hey, I want you to go to Nineveh. Remember who that was? Jonah. And Jonah said, no, 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 I'm not going, and he fled to Tarshish, and we know the rest of the story. It did not uh, end well for him. Well, I mean, it ended well, but it didn't, he, he had to go through a pretty rough time uh, to get there. So, I don't know, maybe Peter had, but it's interesting. So, the issue at hand comes down to an understanding between the relationship between law and grace. How do they go together? What's, what's the guiding principle in our daily life? I mean, we don't, we're, we're not coming out of the Jewish system. You know, it's been 2,000 years since this all took place. So a lot's happened in the world, and there are all kinds of cultural things going on. But we, even now, 2,000 years later, in Western American evangelical culture, each have our own individual prejudices and preferences. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we can allow those to be elevated to a level of law, drawing lines that the Bible doesn't draw. And God says, no, 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 I want you to have balance. There are things that I clearly spell out in Scripture that are moral issues. And, and you certainly don't want to presume upon those because that would be license. But I do want you to recognize there's a relationship here. And there shouldn't be, uh, you shouldn't draw lines that the Bible uh, doesn't draw. So let's look at just some key principles here for understanding law and grace. And the first one is this, don't miss the forest for the trees. Don't miss the forest for the trees. So uh, going back to the text, uh, remember he said, in this sheet were all kinds of four-footed animals. Peter was laser focused on the animals and he missed several bigger things that were taking place. First of all, he missed the fact that God was speaking to him. I mean, heaven had opened, a voice was heard, these weird animals were floating around on the sheet, and Peter's all focused on, uh, these animals are unclean. Well, there's a little bit more going on here, Peter. Not only that, but he was in the midst of prayer. I mean, how often do we miss God while we're praying? Now, that's kind of embarrassing, and that's kind of what was happening. Peter was praying to the Lord. The Lord says, here I am, i got something to tell you. Peter says, no, 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 there's some unclean animals here. Hold on, i got to deal with it, right? But more importantly, God had a bigger plan in mind, and that plan was all about grace. Grace is what saved Peter, and grace is what would save Cornelius, and grace is what saves everybody. Grace has always been what brings salvation. And in this present age that Peter was just beginning and the apostles were just beginning to enter into seven years into it, what we were seeing was not a new means of salvation, but just the fact that the shadow of the law that sort of foreshadowed God's grace in high definition was removed. And now we saw the ultimate expression of grace. It was there, 
It's always been there. God has always been a God of grace. But what was previously sort of pictured and symbolized through the sacrificial system had now been seen in, in full high-definition technicolor when the Lamb of God shed His blood on the cross. So this brings up the question, what is the purpose of the law? What is the purpose of the law? Paul actually asks this very question. Isn't that great? We ask a question, the Bible asks the same question. What purpose then does the law serve? The Galatians, whom Paul is writing to here uh, later, uh, were just like Peter. They were so consumed with the presence of the law that they failed to recognize its purpose. And Paul answers his own question. He says, "It the law was added because of transgressions, because of sin. Uh, Paul says, I wouldn't have known sin except through the law. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Now the law didn't come till Mount Sinai in 1446 B.C. through Moses. Sin certainly existed before that. Sin existed when Adam and Eve bit the apple, when Cain killed Abel, and there were many sins before that. What Paul is saying here is that when the law came, it sort of invigorated sin. It highlighted it. It helped us understand it and see it and, and delineate it more clearly. So the purpose of the law was, first of all, to regulate behavior, and it did do that. Not perfectly, not completely, but it provided some structure. It restrained sin uh, a little bit. And Paul reminds us that the law is good if it's used lawfully. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. The law is not made for a righteous person, but the lawless and insubordinate for the ungodly and sinners. Because in theory, the righteous, that word there means positionally righteous, those who by faith have been saved and therefore they're in Christ. In theory, we don't need a law because the law is written on our hearts, the Spirit of God. Uh, but some people need law. Some people need it more than others. So it was to regulate behavior, restrain sin, and it was temporary. Uh, this couldn't be more clear from Scripture. Paul, going back to that same verse, says, The law was added because of transition, transgressions until the seed should come. The seed, capital S, that's Jesus. We talked about that last Wednesday night in our Bible study. First reference to Jesus is in Genesis 3.15, when the seed will ultimately destroy Satan. Uh, but he says, the law was put in place up until a certain time when Jesus came. He goes, before faith came, that is not faith in an in in absolute sense, but faith in the sense of the Christian community of faith, we were kept under guard by the law. We were kept for the faith which will be revealed later. Therefore, the law was our tutor. That word tutor means nanny, uh, overseer. See, the law was given for a specific preordained and limited period of time. And it had a particular purpose. It's true that the law dominated Jewish thought for 1,500 years, but that wasn't the end of God's plan. And some Jews were having trouble seeing that. Peter could not see the forest for the trees. Peter couldn't understand that the law was just one tree in God's big forest. So if we look at God's plan of the ages, what we see is that, you know, here's Peter fixated on the law, and, and it sort of begs the question, well, okay, Peter, you, you revere the law so much, that's great, but what about God's plan prior to the law? Was he in existence and doing things on planet Earth before the law? I mean, was God still at work, for example, in Noah's day, well before the law? Well, of course he was. Or what about in Adam and Eve's day? Was God still at work? Of course he was. See? And what about after the law? This is what God is trying to tell Peter. What about in the present church age? Is God still at work? Absolutely. The law is just part of God's plan. It's not the end-all, be-all of God's plan. Paul tells us, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, who was born under the law, to redeem those who had been under 
the law. He tells us that in the ages to come, he has planned all along was to show the riches of his grace in Christ Jesus. Jesus himself explained during his earthly ministry, look, I didn't come to destroy the law. The law is part of God's plan, but I came to fulfill it. The word fulfill there in Greek, it's plurao. It means to end, to finish, to complete. That's the meaning. I came to put, put, put the end of it. Paul makes it very clear. Christ is the end of the law. Christ is the end of the law. So don't miss the forest for the trees. It's not about the law. It's about grace. But there's a second principle for understanding the relationship between law and grace, and that is this. Not all that is gold, if I can turn the phrase, glitters. Not all that is gold glitters. Peter took one look at these animals and said, these are common, these are unclean. That's what he saw. And uh, Peter said, that's no good. I can't eat that. It's not allowed. It doesn't glitter, right? It doesn't meet the standard. It's not gold. And so that leads to a second question, what's the value of the law? And what we're going to learn is that God's law pales in value compared to God's grace. Paul addresses this in Galatians when he's reminding the Galatians that the law is inferior to Christ and everything he has to offer because the law was appointed by angels, by, through angels, by the hand of a mediator. See, the Galatians, like Peter, had this picture in their minds that elevated the law into this position of prominence and superiority. But Paul says the law is inferior to Christ because the law was given by mediators, Moses and angels, on Mount Sinai, whereas the promise of grace came directly from God. We can trace the promise of grace and the promise of seed, the seed of Christ, all the way back to Genesis 3.15, as I said, when God is speaking directly. He didn't need a mediator. Hebrews tells us God has spoken to us by His Son. This is God's direct revelation. The grace of God in Christ is real gold, and Peter missed it. Not all that is gold glitters. How often do we allow our preferences and prejudices to, to cause us to overlook something that God is doing because we think it's bad? See, God's doing a lot more than what goes through our little finite minds. And when we put God in a box and we say, this is the way God's working, we sometimes forget that it's a big world, a big globe, and He's a big God, and He's doing some amazing things. And just because it may not be all shiny and glittery to us doesn't mean it's not of the Lord. And the third principle is this. You don't always get what you pay for. So don't miss the forest for the trees. Not all that is gold glitters. And you don't always get what you pay for. Now let's say for the sake of argument that Peter was right. His self-righteous, prejudicial, legalistic opinions were right. Well, what does it get him? I mean, if the law is all that, what does it result in? And that brings up a third question. What's the result of following the law? Well, you don't always get what you pay for. Going back to the text, three times God pointed out that his menu items were good. They're okay. They're acceptable. They were five-star, if you will. And yet Peter looks at the Lord and says, uh, do you have any leftover menu items I can look at? I like the old stuff. Uh, maybe something from the scrap pile or last week's special. And God tells Peter, don't call my cooking common. See, the law simply cannot result in the ultimate blessing that comes through Christ. You don't get 
what you pay for. Have you ever been caught by one of those scams where you, know, you paid a lot of money for something that you thought was really valuable and it turned out to be a piece of junk? We've all been there. Well, you don't always get what you pay for, and that's certainly true of the law. The law can never provide what grace can. So God says, okay, you want to operate under the law? Pay up. Let, let's see how far it gets you. Go back to Galatians. Paul says, if there had been a law given which could have given life, then the righteous, you know, you would have been saved, or righteousness would have come by the law. But there isn't. The law can never deliver what it promises because no one is able to keep the law perfectly. Peter and the Galatians hung their hat on the law. But if you live by the law, you're going to die by the law. And Paul says, Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Christ, he's the answer. Because what the law couldn't do, he did. God accomplished what the law could not accomplish by sending his own son. The law, in fact, highlights man's need for a savior. Jesus put it plainly in Matthew 5.48, you want to get into the kingdom of heaven? Be perfect. Keep every jot and tittle of the law. James, the Lord's brother, said, if you keep almost all of it but stumble in the slightest point, you might as well have broken all of it because the standard that heaven demands is perfection. And no one can keep the law perfectly. Therefore, you don't get what you're bargaining for. Remember, before faith came, we were kept under guard. The law was our tutor. The law serves its purpose. It was, it was a tutor. It was a nanny. But it's time to grow up. It's time to grow up, the Lord says to Peter. So before you plunk down your money and bet on the law, just remember, you don't always get what you pay for. And finally, the last principle is this. The best things in life are free. The best things in life are free. The law comes with a steep price. The law has detailed requirements, specific consequences. The Jewish law in particular was explained in hundreds of pages of commentary and clarification. I mean, have you read the book of Leviticus? That's the law. The law is anything but free. But grace, by its very definition, is free. The word grace means free gift. And grace is so much better than the law. That, that brings up the last question, which what's the, what's the alternative then to the law? Again, we looked at this a second ago. What the law couldn't do, God did by sending his own son. That's grace. When God sent Jesus, that's grace. It's an undeserved gift. We talked about this two weeks ago. The best things in life truly are free. In the Bible, God's plan of the ages as it's revealed in the written word from Genesis all the way to Revelation ends with this reminder. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, Jesus says. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely, freely to him who thirsts. You don't have to pay for it. It's already paid for by the blood of Christ. In the very next chapter, the last chapter of Revelation, the last chapter of the Bible, near the very end of that chapter, whoever desires... Let him take the water of life freely. Because it's the only way we can be justified, freely, by grace. By grace, through Christ. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. The best things in life are free. So, the relationship between law and grace. Where are you on this uh, continuum? Do you tend to resonate more with 
lines and structure and this very demanding uh, expectations and sort of being judgmental and maybe even a little unforgiving about people who, who don't have those same lines that you have drawn? Or are you over here more on the other extreme end of the continuum with no order, no structure, no rules, no accountability? See, the goal is to strike a balance. There's a need, not for legalism, but certainly for the law. And grace, obviously, is pervasive. And what we want to do is focus on grace even in, even in the law. Grace. Grace always wins in the end. So what's the takeaway? Well, Jesus reminds us, I love this verse uh, from Matthew, why this concept of grace is so important. It's not just about the fact that it's only by grace that our penalty for sin personally can be uh, paid for so that we can spend eternity in heaven. That's part of it. But he doesn't, if that was all there was to it, the minute you trusted in Christ, he would take you straight to heaven. But he leaves us here with a job to do, doesn't he? Which is why North Rock Community Church exists. It's why we gather on Sunday mornings as a community of faith. So Jesus reminds us, freely we have received, freely give. The concept of law versus grace and understanding the relationship is important because it regulates the way we live and act today on earth and interact with other people. So the takeaway is very simple. Be gracious. Be gracious. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this reminder from the really strange experience that Peter had uh, on the rooftop when he was praying. And Lord, I pray that that experience would get our attention as well and remind us uh, that if we're drawing lines that you don't draw, that we need to let go of that and trust you and, tr- and, and walk by grace, the same, very same grace that saved us. And Lord, if we're maybe presuming upon your grace from time to time, living and doing things that we know are not in keeping with your ideals and your best uh, plan for us. We pray that you would convict us of that and help us to, to place ourselves under your authority. And Lord, we just pray today if there's anyone here who has never made that initial step by grace of trusting in your Son and our Savior Jesus as the only one who can save them, that today before they leave this very room, uh, they would in the quietness of their own heart uh, simply place their faith in, in, in Jesus saying something like, Lord, I know I'm a sinner, I can't save myself, and I trust in you as the one who died and rose again for my sins to save me. And I pray that no one would leave this place today without coming to know you. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name.